You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. With over 200,000 locations throughout the U.S. and offering 12,000 different types of batteries, stop into your local Interstate Battery store today and let them help you find the right batteries for your everyday life. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, the number one source for hunting and fishing information, strategy and tactics, as well as conversations surrounding conservation efforts and other outdoor activities in the great state of Iowa. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and this episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast starts right now. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. My name is Dan Johnson, and I am your host. Today, we have another awesome podcast, and we're going to be talking with Joel Johnson about an article that he has written for the magazine, and it was the top five hardest animals in Iowa to hunt. And uh, that's what today's podcast is about. We talk about Hungarian partridge, we talk about turkey, we talk about deer, we talk about coyotes, and uh, a couple other uh, animals in there, and, and uh, breakdowns and whatnot. So it's really exciting. I love podcasts like this where it's just a, basically a BS session between two buddies, and uh, yeah, I hopefully you enjoy it. But before we get into today's podcast, we got to do a commercial, and we're talking once again about Bondurant Custom Furniture. Now, Bondurant Custom Furniture is obviously located in Bondurant and their website is bondurantcustomfurniture.com. Now what do these guys do? They take old whiskey barrels amongst other reclaimed wood and they make beautiful pieces out of them, right? They make customized furniture like cabinets, tables, chairs, then they make some artwork type pieces like lighting and uh, clocks and heck I think I've seen them make dog beds and benches, whatever. Uh, Call them up or uh, go to their website and take a look at everything that they have and then all their contact information is on their website bondurantcustomfurniture.com. If you have an idea, get a hold of them and uh, they're going to be able to do whatever it is that uh, you can imagine. I have a, I have a feeling. So bondurantcustomfurniture.com. Check them out. Let's go ahead and get into today's podcast with Joel Johnson. All right. On the phone with me once again, Mr. Joel Johnson. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Dan. How's the summer been so far, man? 
Uh, it's been crazy busy. Uh, I'm finally home uh, from from vacation, and, and uh, you know, really looking forward to getting my food plots in. They're they're uh, a little bit late uh, as usual, but yeah. uh, that's kind of next on the docket for me. Yeah, I think everything uh, as far as getting plants in the ground this year in the state of Iowa is late. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I know the farmers really struggled to get uh, finish up with the corn, and then it was a mad dash to get the beans in around here in West Central Iowa, at least. Yeah, yeah. Have you noticed just from driving around the lack of planted uh, f- fields? Uh, not in this area. I think they they pretty well got it slammed in um, at, at the end of the day. But uh, you know, we do have a lot of really short beans out there, and yeah. you know, if we get uh, if we go through a dry spell or, or get uh, the heat that you know Iowa usually promises this time of year and into August, um, I'm guessing the beans will probably be suffering. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Where'd you go on vacation? Uh, my daughters are actually both competitive weightlifters, so we were out in California for uh, a national uh, weightlifting meet, and you know spent a couple of days in in uh, Anaheim and did Disney and and hit the beach. So it was a good time. No. Oh, that's awesome. Like, okay. So I have a whole bunch of questions really, really quick. I want to, I want to figure this out because, um, I've seen some of these, uh, weightlifting competitions. How old are your daughters? Uh, 12 and 14. Okay. 12 and 14. How much do they weigh? Uh, my youngest was in the 64 kilo category. So around 135 pounds. And then my, my oldest is 14 and she was in the 59 kilo, which is, about 127, 120, 130 pounds right okay. around there. All right. So then what, what, um, lifts are these Olympic lifts? Are they like squat bench? What are they? So they are, these are Olympic lifts. This was, uh, United, uh, USAW. So United States, uh, weightlifting association. Um, this was their national youth meet. Um, they have it obviously once a year. Um, and the lifts they do are the snatch and the clean and dirt. Okay. That is crazy. Um, that, you know, I, when I envision weightlifting, I envision these big giant people, not these, you know, these little girls <laughs> doing these weights. Um, is that, is that something that they got into through you or is it just, I don't know, something that they've done by themselves? It's so my son who's in, in college now, uh, he, we lifted at North Highland weightlifting in, in Carroll, Iowa. Our coach's name is Greg Kestra. Awesome guy. Uh, love to give him a shout out. Um, and he, he coaches all athletes, you know, all, all sports, et cetera. Um, he has a, a core group of, of actual weightlifters, uh, but he trains kids, uh, you know, across all their sports to help them get strong and, and, uh, perform better. Uh, because the Olympic movements are really focused on uh, uh, on explosive moves and building building uh, fast twitch muscle fibers, so kids can run faster, jump higher, throw harder, etc. And so, my uh, son that's in college um, started lifting there. Uh, he was a pitcher in high school, wanted to add some some velocity to his fastball, and, and knew he needed to get uh, he to get uh, strong through the legs and, and hips, and so. That's how it started. Um, he was never a competitive weightlifter, but my oldest daughter would go up there and, and watch him. And when uh, we felt like she was old enough, you know, she was really interested in, in lifting to get stronger for softball. Um, 
but as uh, as their coach said, you know, he can he can spot a, a good weightlifter in about five minutes, um, just based on the way they move and in their ability to to learn the moves and, and the the technique involved. And so um, it turned into a hey, I want to get strong for softball to boy, I really enjoy this. And, and now I think I really want to be a weightlifter instead. And so, and then as, as my youngest, you know, we go up there and watch, you know, it kind of, it kind of followed the same pattern. She really um, enjoyed um, watching uh, my oldest do it. And then she started herself. And so um, uh, they've been lifting, the oldest has been lifting for maybe two years this fall. And my youngest started lifting last summer. And so they uh, they love it. It's really helped them out a lot uh, personally, you know, well beyond the weight room, you know, uh, goal setting and hitting a goal and, and realizing, um, you know, what what the yeah. payoff is for all the hard work they do. It, it's It's been great. That's awesome. That is awesome. That's uh, definitely unique. You know, it's like when you think of girls, you don't think of, you know, this is obviously stereotypes, but you don't think mm-hmm. of, hey, let's get our daughters into weightlifting, whatever. But that's, mm-hmm. that's awesome, man. I um, yeah, I can see the funny thing too is you know uh, anybody that's that, that watches the Olympics you know coming up in 2020, our female weightlifting team uh, will be the most competitive team we've ever put on the stage, and I fully expect um, that we'll be coming all the way with with a lot of medals this year for the first time, really in in the history of U.S. Uh, weightlifting. Uh, we've really been overshadowed by. Um, Eastern Europe and in Russia and China yeah. over the last uh, several decades, but um, yeah, that gap is closed, and and uh, you know I think people that are watching are going to see uh, just an explosion in in uh, in our success. In That's awesome. That is awesome. Cool. Well, good luck to your girls, man. Um, but now we're going to do one of those stop transition. Let's talk about hunting. Uh, <laughs> Sounds good. You recently just wrote an article for the Iowa sportsman called Iowa's top five most difficult species to hunt. And I was reading through this article and I, I happen to agree with what you've uh, written because hunting there, there's people out there who they, they take a look at hunting and they say, Oh, that, that's not too hard. That's easy. But for every time I can give you an ex- example of a, a time, a, a hunt went easy, I can give you 10 uh, ex- experiences or examples of times that they went horribly uh, wrong. And I walked away completely frustrated out of the timber. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've had the same experience myself for sure. Right. So what kind of, what kind of led you to write this article? Was it based out of frustration or just kind of, uh, one of those, you know, what would be a good article to write this? Uh, I think it was more the latter, you know, um, when we think about Iowa, you know, maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but you know, when you think about Iowa, most people think about pheasants and deer. Um, but you know, I was raised a you know, we, we were all raised, me and my brothers were all raised to, you know, we were small game hunters first. Right. So mm-hmm. we started with the old, the old, uh, HR break action 410 and, and dad would start us out on rabbits and squirrels. And, you know, we would kind of graduate up to single shot 20 or, and then the pump 20, and then ultimately the, you know, the pump 12s and, and, uh, you know, then, you know, once you got your first bird, your first pheasant, then, uh, 
you know, you were kind of, uh, that, that was kind of the transition and, and, uh, you were, you felt like a man at that point. Yeah. Um, didn't do a lot of deer hunting until I was, um, older. Um, but that's kind of how it worked. And so, you know, I think it's important to think about, you know, Iowa isn't just about, you know, small game and pheasants and, and deer. There's a, there's a lot of thing, other things out there and, and some of them are pretty dang hard to hunt. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's just, uh, kind of go, let's start the beginning and I want to get your idea of what makes something difficult to hunt. Right. And so, you know, and this, this article is kind of fun to write. And again, it wasn't, it wasn't scientific by any means, but you know, when I put this list together, it was really about, you know, the animals themselves have their own kind of inherent um, instincts and, and, and adaptations that, that make them, you know, pretty formidable. Right. Um, but, you know, we can't think about it um, with just that in mind, because, you know, uh, depending on where you live in the state, you may have a really high number of, of deer, for example, and, and very few pheasants, or, or, you know, you might live up in Northwest Iowa where you have a ton of pheasants and, and, you know, not as many deer and, and things of that nature. So it's not only about the kind of the cunning and the canniness about, of the animal, but it's also, you know, where are they found, um, in numbers that, that make it even worth going out to hunt. Um, and in those areas, you know, is, are, are you talking Polk County where you've got, you know, uh, the largest population center in the state and, you know, and, and the largest number of hunters all chasing the same number of animals. Um, and so all of those things kind of played into it as well as, you know, what am I, what am I actually pursuing them with? You know, is, is it a high powered rifle? Is it a shotgun? Is it, is it archery equipment? You know, there's lots of different factors that, that kind of went into this article and I tried to uh, kind of define those, but, you know, all things being equal, you know, whatever that weapon is, you know, that's really going to have a, a pretty heavy uh, influence on, on how hard it is and, and uh, how successful ultimately uh, guys are going to be out in the field. Okay. So with, with that said, then did you take into consideration like uh, a younger Turkey may be uh, easier to hunt or a younger deer may be easier to hunt than an older age class animal? Yeah, I did. And, and, you know, using those examples, um, not so much on the turkeys, but, you know, if, if you look at the list in, in my top five, I've got Pope and Young Bucks listed at four, um, not to take anything away from uh, a Pope and Young Buck at all. Um, uh, but I got, you know, I have Boone and Crockett Whitetails as, as the ultimate, you know, the number one on the list. And, and a lot of that has to do with age, right? right. And so, you know, if you think, at least in this area, West Central Iowa, where we've got, uh, you know, we've got uh, Raccoon River Bottoms, you know, for the middle North Coon and, and uh, South Coon. Um, we've got some, some fairly decent large um, sections of timber down into Guthrie County. And, and uh, you know, in this part of the state, a three-year-old deer, um, you know, three-and-a-half-year-old deer, four-year-old deer, you know, they are going to be, in most cases, you know, scratching or, or well, well inside of Pope and Young minimums, um, in a lot of the cases. Um, and so, you know, this part of the state, um, not to say they're easy by any means, but, uh, they're not uncommon for guys to go out and be able to, uh, 
to uh, you know consistently take a, a real nice Pope and Young deer if if they're uh, you know if they're doing things correctly. Um, Boone and Crockett's, on the other hand, you know, good example. My father-in-law has hunted this area for you know more than fifty years. Yeah, uh, he has one Boone and Crockett buck he shot with a shotgun you know twenty years ago, um, and I can think on one hand, you know given the, the, the terrain and, and the availability of the deer in this part of the state, you know, I can think on one hand how many guys I know that have a, a net boon and crockett buck on the wall. And so, um, and a lot of that I think has to do really with, you know, the ability to, to hide and, and evade hunters and, and grow old. And, and that's just not something um, that is easy to do. You know, we've, you know, if you don't have the river bottoms and the draws and the wood lots that, that they, uh, that they can escape to, you know, they just, uh, they just don't have the opportunity to get the age required to really put on that, all that, uh, all that horn. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I kind of want to talk, uh, about, uh, this, this list now go into it and let's talk about coyotes and I want to share, uh, I've killed one coyote my entire life Mm -hmm. and every other time that I've had an encounter with a coyote and most of them are during bow season uh just a couple times from the ground while turkey hunting and that was just out of dumb luck because I was in a spot where the wind wasn't you know was you know going the right way but every time I've been close to uh coyote while deer hunting uh they've they've busted me long before I ever had a shot so what, in your opinion, makes coyote such a hard animal to hunt? You know, I think it's, it's a combination. You know, I think they are just naturally a, a really wary um, predator, right? Um, back in the day, you know, they, they weren't the top dog. You know, they were, they, they really pushed east from, from what, you know, what I've read about them. Um, you know, coyotes were never really prolific or found much east of the Mississippi River, uh, but they've been, you know, they were pushed this direction um, through predation on them by wolves and, and mountain lions and, and things like that. And so um, as they have moved, you know, farther east, they've learned uh, to live with people. Um, I, I grew up in Urbandale, um, you know, suburb of, of Des Moines, and it wasn't uncommon, you know, a couple of times a year to see, see a coyote literally just, you know, walking right down the street early in the morning or, or in the evening in neighborhoods. You know, I know the city of Chicago, um, there, I, there are videos online where they've done studies of how the coyotes are, are fully implemented in uh, you know, down, even downtown Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, they have leveraged the railroad tracks and, and the, uh, uh, the parks, there's lots of little nature preserves spread out through the city of Chicago and they are just, they're incredibly adaptable. Um, and, and, you know, once they lose their fear of humans, uh, you know, they're not afraid to even uh, walk around in those parks, uh, during the day. And so I think, uh, between just their uncanny, uh, adaptability and then just their their natural senses, right? I mean, they're a canine. Um, they've got incredible noses. Um, they've got very large ears. Um, and so I, I think they're just, 
you know, they're one of those critters that they've been picked on their whole lives. So they're always kind of looking over their shoulder. Um, and then they've got the nose uh, and, the, and the hearing really to back it up. And I would agree with you. I've shot a handful of coyotes on purpose uh, with a rifle when I was actually going for them. I've shot two with uh, my bow during deer season, uh, but I've been busted by, you know, dozens more when they were, you know, I could have swore they were upwind of me and, you know, 50 yards out and, you know, whether they heard something or smelled something or just didn't feel like the situation was right, you know, they were, they were just gone. And so uh, they are, they are one of those, they make the list because, uh, you know, they're just, uh, I would say at this point, they're probably the most adaptable, um, you know, predator we have in this country and yeah. they're spread and, and uh, uh, they're spread east and south into territories where they weren't, you know, originally found, even with, um, you know, the growth of the human population in those areas uh, really just speaks volumes of their, their, uh, uh, their ability to, to be successful. Yeah. And I, I feel some of it has to do with, you know, them, them being adaptable means they have to use their brain and they have witnessed probably for hundreds of years, their buddies getting shot or killed or stuck in a trap or something, which has made them just think about every scenario in their heads. Um, and they, they just, they process everything at a much faster speed, which allows them to say, oh, I'm not even going to take the chance on this. I'm out of here. Yep. Yep. I agree hundred percent. And at the same time, it's frustrating because when I walk out of the timber during bow season, uh, they'll, they'll run right by me in the dark, you know, and I can't see them barking or chirping and, and, and howling. And it's just like 20 minutes ago, you were scared shitless of me. And now you're, you're running up behind me. Yep. Yep. I tell you, there's been some times, um, and I think one other thing too, is, you know, uh, they, they pair up and they start breeding, you know, February, March, you know, roughly in those timelines. And I think they're incredibly good, um, parents, to their pups. And yeah. so, uh, I think I read a statistic one time, you know, once coyotes get established, you know, you have to shoot, I think it was up to 80, 85, 90% of them in a given area, uh, every year just to maintain, you know, a population. Yeah. Um, you know, so that tells me not only are they uh, really smart, they're very good parents. They, you know, and, and they're prolific. Um, you know, you figure they're having, if you've got two pairs of coyotes per square mile, you know, and they're having five to seven pups, I mean, you can do the math on that. Um, especially if they're not being hunted, you know, they can spread really, really fast. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fact. That's a fact. And that's something I'm actually worried about on one of the farms that I hunt. Um, I had last year, 11 coyotes in one picture. Now, I don't know mm-hmm. if they are calling my farm home, but there are definitely a re- reduced number of turkey, a reduced number of deer in that area, and an influx mm-hmm. of coyotes. Now, I don't know if that has to do with the harsh winter that we had uh, this past mm-hmm. year or if the coyote uh, population is up, but I've definitely noticed an increase in uh, coyote activity. 
Yeah. And I think it's, it's probably, you know, you think predator prey relationships are, can be really complex, right? Yeah. Um, but when we think about coyotes, um, it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if, if that's just called them the apex predator in this area, cause that's really what they are. Right. So, um, so their populations typically are going to, to, uh, flex just like, um, and follow, their, their prey relationships. Right. And so, you know, all things being the same, you know, you're going to have, you know, let's look at rabbits. They've got like a seven year cycle, right? So as you build up to the, to the top end of that cycle, naturally you're going to see, you're going to see more hawks and more owls and things of that nature because there's more, more prey around. Um, but those first couple of years after they have a die off, then you, you'll start seeing fewer, fewer raptors around because they got, you know, rabbits are one of their number one foods and they're going to see, uh, less food and they're going to have less success, um, uh, breeding coyotes. I I think they probably follow a similar kind of pattern. Um, with the one difference being, uh, the fact that, you know, they are super adaptable, right? Um, I've read a lot of studies recently where, you know, guys are, are in South Dakota and North Dakota have, have done a ton of research on coyotes and, and their relationships with prey animals. Uh, and the conclusions for, for both of those studies really were that, hey, you know, if, you, if you're a guy that wants you know, to maximize the number of deer on this property, you know, shoot every coyote you can. Yeah. Uh, because they take, not only do they take down fawns, um, in the Dakotas where they have even harsher winters than we have, you know, you get deep snow and, you know, lack of food. Um, it's nothing for, you know, three or four coyotes to bring down a full size deer. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, so that was one conclusion. If you want to maximize the deer on your property, you know, shoot every coyote you want, everyone you can get. Conversely, those same studies said if you want to maximize pheasants and ducks on your property, hey, don't shoot any coyotes because they are out there. They they manage foxes, raccoons, possums, you know, all of those rodents and in uh, you know, small fur bears that are that are killing the chicks and in in tearing nests up and uh, and uh, just raising havoc with our with our upland bird populations. They're saying hey maybe don't shoot any coyotes if you're looking to, uh, you know, manage your property for pheasants or ducks. And so that's counterintuitive to a lot of guys and, and you know, nobody in this area, uh, you know, puts a lot of stock in that. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's, uh, that's what the science is saying. Um, but I think coyotes, you know, the fact that, that, uh, you know, they are successful predators and, and they are very prolific. Um, I think if you get into an area where the, if the deer population goes down, they're going to transition to, to whatever they can find. Um, and if that becomes pheasants or, or foxes or, or ducks or whatever, they're going to, they're going to eat whatever they need to eat to survive. Yeah. Um, and it's funny you mentioned that, uh, I had a trail cam picture last year. I had six of them on camera coming through on a, on a major deer trail. And so, um, you yeah, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of, uh, alarming. You know, you were talking about walking out of the timber at night, some of the places I bow hunt down in Guthrie County, uh, about, about nighttime, a guy starts to get a little twitchy, you know, you're walking yeah. out of the timber and it sounds like you're, you're surrounded by a uh, hundred coyotes and they start, <laughs> uh, they start howling all around you. So I, I totally uh, understand what you're, what you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. Amazing creature. Um, 
and it just kind of goes to show you how how delicate an ecosystem can be if you take out one thing something else will take its place as far as not necessarily yep. you know in that predator prey standpoint but now i want to kind of move to something that i don't ex- think i've ever seen or have any experience with in the state of Iowa, just mainly because um, I spend most of my time in eastern, southeastern Iowa, the Hungarian mm-hmm. partridge. Why don't you just, number one, fill mm-hmm. us in on what that bird is, and second, just walk us through why it's so difficult. Sure, sure. And so um, so I grew up doing, you know, when we were kids, we never had any property or anything like that. Our, our, uh, our cousins... Um, had land up in in uh, Hamilton County and and you know back in the 80s um, you know uh, things were just different uh, from uh, permission and, and, and access to land and so when we were kids up in that country you know we would do a lot of road hunting we'd walk a lot of sloughs a lot of fence roads etc um, and up there you know it's it's relatively flat um, uh, not not a ton of cover other than you know, a swamp or a slough or, or maybe a farmer that has a, a nice windbreak around his place or, you know, weedy ditch or, or fence line here or there, but relatively flat. And so, um, we would run into partridge every once in a while. Um, and they, they can for, for people that have never seen them before, they, they kind of look like a, they almost look like a hen pheasant, um, with a short tail. Um, you know, if you're, if you're driving down the road in, and you see something that just doesn't quite look right, you know, that's kind of what they look like. They're about the same size, uh, maybe a little smaller than a hen pheasant. Yeah. Uh, but if you're, if you're just jamming down the road, you know, a lot of people probably mistake them for that. Um, when you get up closer, they're, they're almost a blue, blue gray in color. Um, they'll have a, like a chestnut or, or burgundy splash across their breast. Um, uh, but that, that's kind of what they look like and, and they cover you up just like quail. And so, you know, they are a bird that that's really, you know, going back to, you know, geography and, and how they're dispersed across the state, you're really talking about the Northern, you know, let's just say one third of the state, um, is where, where you're going to find partridge for the most part. We have a few over here, um, uh, north of town and, and up into northern Carroll County and in those areas where it starts to flatten out. But they are they are a bird that, um, that that has no problem at all, you know, sitting out in the middle of a pick bean field during a blizzard. Um, and they're just really hardy. They're really tough. And it seems like no matter what strategy you employ, if you spot a covey along the road or you, you happen to, to see some while you're out bird hunting, I've never found a strategy that really works good other than to, you know, uh, load up your gun with as much, uh, seven and a half or eight shot as you can get as close as you can. And, 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 uh, you know, just start uh, blazing at them after they get up because <laughs> you're not going to get close to them. Uh, seems like there's always at least one or two centuries. Uh, if, if you run into cover your eight or 10, eight or 10, you know, six of them might have their heads down eaten, but uh, three or four are always um, always have their heads up and are looking. And when one goes, they all go. Right. Um, and so they're tough to get close, super tough to get close to. Um, they they're not a bird that's going to run into the cover. You know, if if 
uh, if they see a hunter. Uh, that's just not the way they operate. Um, they're going to flush wild. Um, and they're just really hard to get close to. Gotcha. So I take it, this is more, you know, this is more of a plains, uh, plains wide open type animal. Now, as far as numbers are concerned, does that, uh, play into the difficulty because they're, they're not spread wide? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you're limited to a third of the state and you don't have, you know, high numbers, um, uh, those two com- those two things really in combination really make them difficult. Um, add that to the fact that, you know, they're just almost impossible to even get close enough to, to get a shot on. Uh, I'd say between the three of those things, that was really the, what went into my thinking on getting them on the list. And, and I figured that would be one that would surprise some people, especially if, if they've never even seen one before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, uh, that's an animal that, you know, like I said, along, I'll just call it, I'll put it in the category with pheasant, right? The first time I mm-hmm. ever went hunting was pheasant hunting with a dog and my uncle. And uh, I shot my first rooster. It was awesome. Um, do do they imply that or employ that tactic as well when going out to hunt these uh, it, like with dogs or anything like that? Mm-hmm. So I, I would say it this way. Um I have never, I have never personally, and I don't know anybody that's actually gone out. Hey, I'm going to go out partridge hunting today. Uh, but you, you know, you do see them, um, occasionally when you're, when you're out pheasant hunting or, or if you're out, uh, quail hunting. Um, and, and I think a lot of times guys will mistake them for quail because they're, even though they're about double the size of a quail, they cover up. Um, they fly very similarly similarly to quail they're pretty fast up off the ground um uh, quail are quite a bit faster but because they're smaller but you know in a lot of ways they act um, and behave and fly uh, very much like a quail um, except for the fact that you know whereas quail you're thinking thickets and and uh, southern iowa partridge you're thinking wide open uh maybe on a fence line if you're lucky uh, but really wide open, uh, you know, Northern Iowa is what I think about when I think about a partridge. Perfect. Awesome. That's awesome. All right. So next stop turkeys and, uh, I have a love hate relationship with turkeys. <laughs> right. And the reason for that is I, I'm a hardcore deer hunter at heart, right? I take deer hunting very seriously. I, uh, you know, I go put out trail cameras, I go scouting, I go out like in the hottest parts of the summer to go hang tree stands. I'll sit out there in the coldest parts of the winter to chase deer. But when it comes to Turkey, it's kind of a laid back animal that, you know, for me, I'm laid back about it. If I get one, I get one. If I don't, I don't until they start to give me the, the sneak. And then I start getting pissed off and I'm like, why can't I kill a dang turkey when they're going bananas? You know, they're answering every call. They're going bananas a hundred yards from me, but I can't get a shot off at one. Right. So why do you think it is so like there's days where turkey hunting makes you want to jump off a bridge? So, you know, I, I would say I have the same experience. I was laughing when you're talking about that because I, I have the same experience with them. And, 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 you know, 
this influenced my my putting him up there near the top of the list. You know, for years and years, I you know, uh, I had never hunted turkeys till you know till I was out of college and and really had picked up the bow and arrow and had started had started uh, bow hunting for deer and and I would always see them when I was deer hunting and man, it just seemed so easy. Um, I always talked about I'm going to get a fall tag. I'm going to get a fall tag because these things are they're everywhere. You know, how hard can this be? Um, and so the first few years I tried turkey hunting, you know, I went out with a bow and, you know, I could call them right in, you know, they would get to be within, you know, 50 yards or so, and then they'd hang up and, and I never had a blind and kind of like, you know, I was, I was, uh, I just didn't think it was going to be that hard. And so, you know, I would try and pick my bow up to shoot, you know, of course they just kind of laugh and you need to run or fly away. And so after a few years of frustration, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I'll get the old, uh, I'll get the old 12 gauge out and, and, uh, we'll settle the score. Well, then for several years with a shotgun, all of a sudden, uh, you know, it was like, I was speaking uh, Greek to him, couldn't get him to come in. If it did come in, you know, it, it was like, I had a, it had a clown suit on, uh, they weren't going to get close enough for a shot. And so, uh, I have the same frustration as you. And, and it could be that, you know, I, uh, yeah, I was just kind of trying to self teach, teach myself how to, how to hunt this animal that I thought would be, would be a slam dunk. And, and, uh, it definitely, you know, that definitely wasn't the case. Um, <laughs> why, why are they tough? You know, they, you know, they're just crazy. They've got, they've got the adaptations, uh, you know, they can see almost all the way around their head and so you know to say you know he's got his back turned to me you know now i can make a movement or now i can raise my gun well you know they really never have their back turned you because they can see i think 350 340 degrees around their head and so um their vision is just just exemplary uh, their hearing is 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 you know right up there near the top as well and at least uh, the farms I hunt, there's always, you know, you can't ever just give one, one Jake or one Tom. It's always a half a dozen or, you know, a half a dozen Toms with, with 25 hens. And, you know, this seems like everybody, one of them's always got their head up or one of them hears you or one of them sees you. And so, uh, you know, my turkey hunting really is, is uh, after several years of frustration, it's just not something I go out uh, and make a, make a priority in the spring. I'd rather go fish and, and catch crappies that are really easy, but, um, <laughs> they're near the top of my list, maybe just out of uh, spite, but, uh, you know, cause I know some guys are really successful. Um, but for me, um, uh, they've been a real challenge and, and I know that, uh, you know, just based on what I read, there's a lot of guys that, that struggle with them too. Yeah. So this year, uh, April, my wife, we go out opening day, right? Go on top of this ridge. Uh, it's one of our. It's like uh, it's just a really popular deer. They're 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 typically roosted on one side of the ridge or the other. Sun comes up. They start to gobble. Reading the script, gobble gobble. I I call. We move a little bit further. One flies down, walks up. My wife shoots it, and the sun hasn't even crested the. You know, it's light enough to shoot, but. Uh, the sun hasn't crested the the horizon yet. The next three days are me running around the timber like a lost puppy, basically looking for 
chasing gobbles, right? And, you know, come to find out they were responsive certain parts of the day and then they were henned up and then they wouldn't come in and then they moved spots or, or they busted us or we'd try to make a stock. And uh, like I said, it went from being a a really fun laid back hunt to me like going full uh, blinders on trying to, you know, it's like, Hey, I'm a man. I got to be able to kill a Turkey, right? I got to be able to do this. And, uh, sure enough, I ate my tag this year. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. And, and, uh, my son had a similar experience. I think the first time he went Turkey hunting, um, it wasn't with me, uh, but they were out, I think for all of about 15 minutes, they got into their blind, the turkeys literally flew from the roost and landed must've been in a tree right behind them, landed right in front of him. As soon as it was shooting light, bang, you know, they're done and they're having lunch at the cafe. Yeah. Um, and that happened to him like two, two years after that, um, out in the left Hills. And, you know, I think it's just, you know, good for him, but the, the turkeys definitely have my number cause I've never had a chance to, uh, to close the deal on them myself either. Yeah. Okay, so now we're, we're, we're grouping in two in this last topic because one of them you said was a Pope and the Young Whitetail, and the other one was Boone and Crockett, right? And mm-hmm. so those two things are categorized based off of antler score. But what, we're, what I'm assuming is you took antler score equals bigger antler score equals older age class, right? Because in order to get a bigger antlers, uh, a deer needs to um, reach maturity or an older age class, thus giving them more time to grow bigger antlers. Is that how you were kind of looking at it? Yeah, it is. And um, if, if, if we think about, you know, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you know, it's one thing for a deer to, to, to survive three and a half, you know, four and a half years. Uh, to where, you know, you're starting, at least in this area, four and a half year old deer, you know, in my experience over the last 20 years of bow hunting, you know, four and a half year old deer uh, is very often going to be in that 130, 135 to, you know, even up to about 150 inch buck, uh, depending on, you know, where they live and in that area. But, you know, those deer are, are, are fantastic. Um, you know, they're, they're not a, not an animal that I ever pass on, uh, when I'm bow hunting, but when you're talking about, you know, I think it's a 170, 170 minimum, um, to, to, to shoot a net boon and crack it. I mean, now we're talking, we're talking five and a half, six and a half years old. And in a lot of, in most areas, I think, um, and you've got to have the right mix of, of you know deep security cover you've got to have and enough of it that you know these deer can escape um when it comes to shotgun season and and they're getting uh rousted out of every every nook and cranny every little timber around um if you don't have enough of that security cover available or if you're not able to um uh, you know, have those safe places on your farm or on the neighbor's farm where they can go and, and, uh, um, stay out of the crosshairs. I mean, you're just not going to be able to produce those kind of deer on a, on a regular basis. Um, and so I, I think those Boone and Crockett deer, I think you're talking, you know, maybe, you know, your chances of shooting one are really low. Um, 
and if you don't live in the southern two tiers or or in kind of the top 10 um, counties that we see um, on an annual basis that are that are producing those kind of deer you know your chances of shooting one are, are pretty darn low and i think a lot of that's just based on the fact that you know if the cover's not available if they're not able to get old you're just not going to have many right i would agree with that and i would also agree uh with the fact that you know hunting media as a whole makes it seem that there are these big deer all over the place and and iowa is an awesome example of that when in all reality statistically a deer reaching an antler score of 170 inches is extremely extremely rare like deer don't do that very often and when they do it's because they have the best combination of food water cover but the last thing is genetics and you a deer has to have good genetics in order to reach 170 because an eight pointer is going to be is never I'm not going to say never but is hardly ever going to reach 170 inches or 160 inches that's a gigantic eight pointer and just statistics alone work against everything that you know we as hunters want which is big gigantic antlers right yeah i totally agree with that and so you know i i I think number one they the deer have to live in an area where they can where they can get old number two they've got to have like you said um they've got to have the right nutrition Uh, obviously they've got to have uh regular and, and available you know water sources but then, you know, the genetics in an area, and I agree with you, you know, I've seen some, really in the last few years even, I've seen some gigantic eight-pointers, you know, getting shot in the state of Iowa, if you look at some of the, some of the boards. But in general, you know, my, my uh, <clears throat> the, the gold standard for me on, on an eight-point deer is if, if that sucker reaches 150 inches, that is a, you know, a true a giant, giant yeah. eight-pointer. Um, but you know, we're seeing them in the one sixties and one seventies now, um, where you didn't before. And I think a lot of that comes down to management too. And so that's maybe, maybe something we haven't touched on, but I think, um, antlers are, are, you know, they are just, it's big business, right? Right. People come to Iowa to shoot big deer. And so as you get more and more people, uh, putting in food plots, putting in, uh, mineral during the off season, and really trying to maximize the size of these deer, we, you know, we're starting to see some of these eight pointers and, and nine pointers and even seven pointers coming in with just ridiculous antlers. But, you know, in general, uh, you know, the more antlers they have, the higher they're going to score, yep. the older they are, the more antlers they're going to have. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, it's hard, it's hard to hunt. See, for me, I look at antler score and I say, well, that has nothing to do with whether or not a deer is going to be hard or not, right? I've, mm-hmm. uh, I got trail camera pictures of two deer uh, over the last five years, right? They're consistently on the property that I hunt. They are nocturnal, so it's not their core area, so, 
but I get trail camera pictures of him every single year. Uh, one of them is, uh, I'm thinking he's going to be eight or nine. If I had to guess, he's an eight-year-old wow. or he's a nine-year-old, and he's had the same dang rack on his head every single year, which is about a 140-class 10-pointer uh, every single year. But his body looks like a, you know, uh, a dually truck, just the huge, <laughs> huge body, um, which makes his antlers look small. But still, that's a great, from a from a score standpoint, that's really, that's a, a good deer. But I think that, people put too much focus on the antlers saying, well, just because it's got a big antlers, uh, just because it has big antlers, uh, it's harder to hunt when a three-year-old deer could each could reach 160 just because it has superior genetics. Mm-hmm. So, yep. I would agree with that. And I've, I've got, I've, I've have similar deer on the property that I manage that, you know, I've seen them since they were, they were just small, right? Yeah. I mean, a, a small eight pointer and he's got, you know, a brow tang that tilts in or, or he has a, you know, main beam that tilts up or down or, or one of these things. And, you know, I, I have them for a couple of years and they're gone for a couple of years and then they're back and, you know, body size, like you said, I mean, they, they look like a, uh, you know, a, a yearling steer out there. They're just huge, massive uh, bodies, but, you know, in some cases the, the rack just doesn't follow. And, and then in other cases you see a, you know, a, you know, a, just a tiny, a tiny deer, no neck, you know, really small, small head, uh, you know, probably a three and a half year old deer that that's got this, this 130 inch frame on it already. And so, you know, and I think those exceptions occur, um, you know, in, all over the place. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, I think can to consistently shoot, uh, you know, a, a, a Pope and young, I would say, I would say it's a lot easier to consistently shoot Pope and young deer, um, than, than Boone and Crockett deer really just based on the fact in, in general, things being equal, they just got to get some age on them. Yeah, absolutely. And we really haven't even touched the, the senses of, of what makes the, the deer, whether it's a doe or a buck hard to hunt right they have some of the best sense uh, um smelling right their their nose picks i i heard it once said that a deer can smell like humans see right we're able to uh see depth we're able to see layers we're able to see um contrasting colors and they're able to see smell like I smell a hunter. He's wearing cotton. He has rubber boots on. Uh, he, he had this for breakfast. I can smell his hair. I can smell his skin. I can smell his eyes. Like that's how detailed they can smell. So imagine trying to beat that every single year and it's hard to do. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. And it's funny too, because, um, you know, in, in my experience, and I'm, I'm sure you've probably seen a lot of the same thing, um, as a hardcore bow hunter, you know, people give, give the nod really to, to a deer's nose. And, and of course, you know, we all know that, you know, you gotta hunt, you gotta hunt them with your, with your, uh, your face into the wind. You, yeah. you want their, you know, you want to put your stand, um, 
where you consistently expect the winds to carry your sim downwind of, of where you expect them to travel. Um, and I think that's, that's a good best practice, but, um, I, I would say, honestly, I think I've been busted more times, um, in my, in my 20 years of bow hunting, I've, I've been busted more times by a deer. I didn't see that saw me move. Yep. Than I have by a deer that smelled me. Yep. Um, especially when it comes to bucks. Um, you know, one day I, I could have, you know, especially during the rut, I could have five bucks walk right, right, right behind me, uh, right in my, in my, uh, my downwind and never even flick their tail. Um, you know, the next day I might have one 40 yards upwind and it's like, I've, I've got a fan behind me, uh, <laughs> uh, blowing his direction. Uh, and so, uh, I think scent is a, definitely a, a primary factor, but, uh, I tell people all the time, if you keep the wind in face, the best in your face, the best you can, uh, maybe spray down with some, with a scent product, um, and then just sit really, really still, you'll kill more deer than, than, uh, you know, than, than a lot of folks, because, yeah. um, the minute you discount their ability to hear and their ability to see you, um, is, is, uh, you know, the, you're going to start missing or, or missing opportunities for sure. Right. Um, I think movement catches guys probably more than they would ever like to admit when they're pulling their cell phone out to check in where they're at or, or see what everybody else is doing. You know, every time you make that movement, you know, uh, they can pick up on that. They may not have, you know, telescopic vision or, or full color vision or this or that, but they do have humongous eyeballs that are built for catching movement. And so they may not run when they see you move. Um, maybe not the first time, but everybody who bow hunts long enough, um, they've had that, that one big nanny doe that's walked <laughs> by you three or four times. And Hey, the first two times, you know, when she looked up in your tree, Maybe she kept on walking, but as the season gets older, that's the, that's the old girl that's going to bust you in about the time that she does. It's going to be November 10th or 11th when, when you have, uh, when you have Mr. Big walking in. Yeah. Following her. And I'll tell you the, okay. So they got great hearing too. They got great sense of smell. They got great, uh, vision. But one thing that I feel has allowed and it's just by uh, natural evolution is their patience. They see humans don't understand this because we are never threatened for the most part by in, by a predator saying, "Well, if, man, if we make a wrong decision uh, between me going to check, you know, where I'm sitting now and going to check my mail, like there's not an animal that's going to jump out of the of my tree and try to kill me." <laughs> These animals get hunted every year. They have coyotes chasing them, right? And so every decision that they make is is life or death. So their patience, I can I these does, some of these mature does who will not stop blowing or they will not stop pounding their feet or doing the head bob until they peg you in that tree or a buck comes through the wind squirrels and he doesn't move for 40 minutes. He stands completely still, doesn't even move his head, stands still for 40 minutes. 
that is some patience that has kept them alive their entire, you know, that species alive. That that's very impressive, and that's one thing that I give them a lot of respect for. And I think that's that's another thing that they will beat a hunter's patience every time. Like a guy doesn't have yeah. the patience to, you know, like oh man, I I'm gonna stand perfectly still for one hour and try to outweigh this deer, right? They're going to move. They're going to sneeze. They're going to cough. They're going to do something. These deer, those animals don't do that. They don't, they don't make mistakes like that. I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, and and I, I agree with you a hundred percent. Um, you know, how many times have you been, you know, uh, it's, you know, you've been out in your stand since before the sun came up. Um, the deer start coming through in the dark. They start coming through in, in gray light uh, before shooting hours. Um, you know, it's, you know, eight, eight thirty. you know, deer have been coming through nine o'clock for slow down a little bit, maybe. And, uh, you know, you reach, you know, you slow ever so slowly reach, uh, over your shoulder or, or turn in your seat to grab, you know, drink of water or grab something out of your pack or just adjust something, you know, the corner of your eye, here's this, you know, this buck or, uh, or this doe that's standing there, you know, 35, 25, whatever distance standing there, you've been on high alert for, for, for an hour, two hours, whatever. And there they are. Yeah. You have no idea where they came from. You have no idea how long they've been looking at you. And then you're stuck. Yeah. And then you are faced with the choice, you know, can I sit here half turned uh, <laughs> in in a really, really awkward position or, or off balance, maybe even worse. How long can I stand here? Um, can I wait them out? And to your point, 99% of the time, you're not going to be able to wait them out. And 99% of the time, they've been watching you for, for quite a while. And 99% of the time, uh, when you relax or, or you tense up, they're going to be history. Yeah. I, that's happened quite a few times, uh, in my day where it's like, all right, I'm pulling the bow up for an afternoon hunt and I'm getting ready to hang it on my, uh, hang the bag up or hang my bow up on the hook. And I look in the distance and there's something there's a deer staring right at me and i'm trying to hold my bow perfectly still and they just they keep staring they keep staring they keep staring (laughs) and here i am in this like one-legged lean elbow touching the tree just like (laughs) if i move i'm screwed and then i i I can't hold that forever so i move and then there they go so uh, that that happens to me every single year oh yeah it's either that or it's you know, it's 1030 or 11 o'clock and, and you've had it, you know, maybe we'll just one of those mornings where nothing worked out. Right. Um, I've had more times than I can even count, um, where I'm getting down and, you know, I got my backpack on and I'm taking my, my bow off the, off the hook, turn around to, to head back to the truck. And, and there he is. Just standing there. <laughs> that pisses me off. That, that yeah. scenario right there is like, I've had that happen with one of the biggest deer I've ever seen on the hoof. Um, it was one of these scenarios where it's like, it's the rut. Oh man, I don't want to, I, I've seen nothing today. The buck I'm after isn't showing mm-hmm. up and I'm, 
I put one boot on the ground and I hear running away and I look behind me. It's that buck at 11 o'clock in the morning, tail up, running straight away from me. And I'm just like, oh my God, I screwed up. And then, you know, you never see that deer again. Yep. Yep. I, you know, and, and I tell myself before the season every year, or at least, you know, when it gets into November, you know, I'm not going to do what I did last year. I'm not going <laughs> to bring my sandwich. I'm going to bring my water. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sit till, till two. I'm going to go home and maybe have a break or, or maybe just go back to, you know, I'm going to pack the truck. I am not leaving timber. Well, you know, thinking about things and doing, yeah, easier than said than done for sure. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it's cost me, uh, more times than not. And so, uh, you know, and I've tried the, the sleeping in and going out at, at, uh, 10 instead of, uh, being out there first thing in the morning. And, um, now that's not worked out for me either. And so, as much as you, you read about, uh, you know, sitting all day or, or sleeping in and going out mid morning and then, you know, sitting through the, what's typically the slow times, you know, for me, I've, you know, I've, I've still had more success uh, either in the morning or the evening. Um, and I've had, um, less luck and, and maybe cost myself, um, chances by by trying that mid-morning routine Um, i found that you walk in at at 10 o'clock and and uh it's like they know you weren't there in the morning and they're bedded down right in front of your stand (laughs) or they're standing in the food plot still when they should be in bed you know um they're just tough you know amongst the you know between the senses that we already covered and in in um their patience which i you know i never really thought about it before but you know you're totally spot on um you know, they're, they're just tough and the older they get, um, they, with each new experience they have, whether it's with a hunter or whether it's with, you know, a coyote or whatever, they just get that much tougher. Yeah. And so, um, that's why a lot of times if I'm, if I'm getting towards the end of the season and that big nanny doe that's been, that's been, uh, harassing me all season, if she gives me a chance, whether it's with the mother loader or, or with the, uh, with the bow, um, those are the kind of deer. If I'm, if I don't think I'm going to get uh, the buck I was looking for, those are the kind of deer I start to, to really target towards the end of the year because I just don't want to have another season with them <laughs> where they're another year smarter and uh, you know, another year of frustration. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mr. Johnson, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on the podcast and chat with us. Um, this has been a great episode, and uh, we'll have to get you on again next time. Sounds great, Dan. Thanks for having me. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Joel for hopping on and chatting with us today. If you haven't already subscribed to the Iowa Sportsman Magazine, please do so. It's fairly cheap and it allows you to get more content directly in your hands. Awesome content about hunting and fishing throughout the great state of Iowa. Also, be sure to go to iowasportsman.com. Check out the website because, once again, more great content, right? Um, They have extra content there, uh, articles about hunting and fishing and uh, outdoor activities like hiking and camping and all types of if, if you can do it outside they cover it um, and you can also find a link there to subscribe to the magazine you can also listen to this podcast on the website as well 
Also, be sure that you are subscribed through iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Hit that subscribe button. And then anytime there's a new podcast that comes out, you guys will be notified. Other than that, I think we're good to go. Hopefully, everybody is having a great summer. Hopefully, everybody is putting on sunscreen because I got a bad sunburn uh, as I'm recording this today. And I forgot how much of a Nancy I am when uh, I have a sunburn because it burns. And now I'm just talking. So we're going to close her down today. Have a great rest of your week and uh, get outside. Get outside.